So it's good to be um, back home after a lot of traveling, and it's good to be back with you, and it's also just good to get back into some of life's rhythms again after two weeks without any rhythm whatsoever. Because whether we like it or not, life does just keep on moving. When we were last together, as I said earlier, it was Christmas Eve. We were talking about the birth of Jesus, about the coming of the Messiah, about the baby who would grow up to be king of all his people. And as we make our way through this winter toward Lent in two months, we're going to continue to follow the story of that life. The first thing we find, though, as we come to the story of this baby is that the baby's no longer a baby. Uh, What seemed like 10 days to us has been about 30 years in the course of the Gospel of Matthew. And the adult Jesus now steps onto the scene in Matthew chapter 3. It can be frustrating sometimes that these four Gospels were given, four different accounts of the life of Jesus. None of them find much interest whatsoever in telling us anything about the young years of this man, Jesus. He's a toddler. There's one story when he's about six years old and stays behind in Jerusalem in the temple, getting lost, his parents freaking out and having to go back and find him. There's one story, and then it jumps to him as an adult beginning his ministry. We get curious about what Jesus might have been like as a teenager, for instance, but the scriptures are completely silent on the topic. They're not biographies, after all. They're not given to us as stories that may be interesting to us. They may not be stories that are meant to give us insight behind the scenes in the life of Jesus. They're written, as John says of his own gospel, that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing may find life in his name. Every word is crafted for that purpose, to reveal Jesus to us as the Son of God, the Savior of the nations, that we may find life. Do you need to find life? Do you need to see some light in the midst of darkness? Do you need to feel peace in your sorrow? Do you need to find freedom from your prison? Do you need life? Then do whatever you need to do to listen well to the book that breathes it. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? Jesus answered, Allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down from heaven like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, if you want to follow along or keep your finger there. 
While we alluded to it earlier in the service, it would probably be helpful to back up a little bit and find out who this John guy is, what he's doing at the Jordan River dunking people under the water, and why Jesus has shown up and come asking to be baptized too. John was introduced at the beginning of chapter 3 here in Matthew, appearing in the desert of Judea outside Jerusalem and preaching, repent, change your minds, your hearts, your lives, for the kingdom of God is coming near. Matthew tells us that John is the one the prophet Isaiah foretold so many years earlier in Isaiah 40 that Sam read earlier. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There was a long expectation that before the great Messiah, the Savior of God's people would arrive, there would be one like the prophet Elijah or maybe even the prophet Elijah himself who would come and prepare the way. And as Matthew describes him, John the Baptist, the baptizer, fits that bill. Wearing Elijah's clothes, the camel hair, the belt around his waist, eating locusts and honey, the people were sure when they saw John, if this was not the Messiah, surely he was the one who would prepare the way. So many people came out into the desert to hear John preaching, and as John called them to repent, to change hearts and lives, to turn back to God and live like it, the people responded. They did repent. They came and confessed their sins at the River Jordan, and as a sign of that repentance, they came and were baptized. Now that baptism isn't yet what we think of as we think of Christian baptism, The Greek word is baptizo, and it just means to dip or to immerse, to clean something with water. What John was doing was something common throughout the Old Testament. It was a ritual washing of uncleanliness. If you've read through the Old Testament law, you'll know that there are things laid out as clean and things laid out as unclean. The things that were clean were those things that are in line with the world as God created it to be. That which was unclean is that that went against these lines God drew in the world as God created it. So touching blood, for instance, or something that was dead would make you unclean. Certain diseases made you unclean. Animals that didn't fit into the categories we find in Genesis 1 were labeled unclean. And when the people of God came into contact with those unclean things, they became unclean and needed to go through a process to clean themselves so they could again return to the presence of God where they were meant to live as this holy nation and royal priesthood. And in the laws of Moses, there were a number of different processes to clean yourself if you had become unclean. One representative passage is from Leviticus 15.13. That whole passage talks about what to do if someone has a a bodily discharge, a disease that causes something gross. It says this, When the one with the discharge is cleansed of that discharge, when it, it stops, they're healed, He shall count seven days from that cleansing. Then he shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water, and he shall be clean. This is what John is doing here in the Jordan River. The people of God have become unclean. They're no longer following the ways of the Lord, living as God created them to live. 
And so John calls the people to repent, to turn around from these ways and turn back to God, to live again as God had instructed. And the people came and confessed that sin. They turned away from it and back to God, and they were baptized, washed by John in the Jordan River in order to become clean again. In order not just to remember God's mercy, but to be forgiven and then to go and live new and holy lives. And it's into that scene that Jesus steps one day. If you back up to the few verses before this, John actually has just finished one of his particularly fiery sermons talking about one who will come after him that doesn't baptize just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire, one whose sandals he's not even worthy to carry, one who will judge between the righteous and the unrighteous finally. And it's right as he finishes announcing this other one who will come right then, by no coincidence at all, Jesus arrives on the scene for the first time in decades, and he gets in line to be baptized. Now, if you follow the story in Luke, which is where we normally read our Christmas story, you'll know that John and Jesus know each other. They're actually cousins on their mother's sides, and they not only know each other, but they know each other. John knows who Jesus is. John knows the promises surrounding Jesus and the interesting situation surrounding his birth. John knows Jesus is the one about whom he's just finished preaching, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, the one who will judge between the righteous and the unrighteous, the only one who is able to judge because he alone is truly righteous. So imagine John's surprise when Jesus gets in line with all these other Jews to come, confess sin, repent, and be baptized. You have no business being here. John says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. What do you have to confess? What do you have to repent of? You shouldn't be quietly here in line with the rest of us. After the hype I just gave you, you should be off preparing the pyrotechnics to begin your public ministry and baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. It's a good question, isn't it? What business does Jesus have coming to be baptized by John with this baptism of repentance? He has nothing to repent of. He has no sin to confess, nothing to be washed of, to be made clean again. Why on earth is Jesus being baptized? Well, he tells us. Chapter 3, verse 15. Allow me to be baptized now, for this is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. He needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. But what on earth does that mean? There's been a lot of ink spilled dealing with this and trying to interpret that phrase. So here's my best understanding after reading some of it. Jesus as you remember from Christmas, which may seem like years ago but was only a few weeks, Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Word who was with God, who was God in the beginning. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes human. 
It took us about 350 years to sort out the right language to use to try to describe that mystery, but we now say Jesus is fully God and fully human. Two persons united completely in one substance, which means Jesus isn't 50% God and 50% human. He's not 99% God and 1% human, not completely God who just sort of appears and looks like he's human for a while on earth. He's not human, but just a little better than the rest of us. He's not human, but elevated a few steps higher because God likes him more. He's fully God and fully human. That means that Jesus, who existed as God from before there was time, had to, in certain ways, empty himself or humble himself, veil and hide his glory and power for a little while as he came down from heaven to take on human flesh. Philippians 2 talks about it when it tells us, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on human form. And when he was found in human likeness, he emptied himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. For in Jesus, God didn't just come to be with us, but to become one of us, to live our life, Hebrews says he was like us in every way, yet without sin. That he came to be one of us and to identify with us so thoroughly that Isaiah 53, as it looks forward to his coming, says he will even be numbered among the sinners. That he will so thoroughly identify with us that he'll be confused for a sinner. Which is what happens over and over again as he's numbered among the tax collectors and sinners, the drunkards and the prostitutes. Which is what would happen when he's condemned unjustly and killed on a cross. And just as Jesus submits to that injustice in order that God's justice may be established, so here Jesus submits to be baptized, to be counted among the sinners in need of repentance that righteousness may be established. That he has come to live our life so thoroughly. That he has come to be one of us. To be with us. That we might become like him. That we might live with him always. This was Christ's mission. And so as John hears Jesus' rationale, whether or not it made any sense to him at all, he too submits submitting his own understanding of what the Messiah should do, should look like, should be, of what he thinks makes sense. He submits it to the will of Jesus, and he baptizes him. And as Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, the passage tells us that the heavens open for him, that he sees the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him, that a voice from heaven announces, this is my Son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. And I've so often wondered why that scene didn't change everything after it forever. Why didn't everyone immediately know the truth about Jesus? Why didn't everyone leave everything behind for him right then and right there? How was there ever a question after this who Jesus truly was? But then I noticed this this week. 
only Jesus saw that. Look back at the passage. Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. This was a show only for Jesus. To everyone else, this looked like any other baptism, which is to say, not much. A man steps into the River Jordan, steps out to John, is dunked underneath the water, raised back up, returns to the shore, and then strangely walks out into the wilderness. This baptism wasn't a huge and momentous affair. It was nothing much special. which is pretty much true of all our baptisms. We come to this font. We say a few words of Scripture. We make promises with as much earnest as we can muster for our children. We splash water on their heads, and then we go about our way as we've seen it done a hundred times before. Baptism doesn't often look like much at all. But don't be deceived. Scripture here gives us the eyes to see through the veil at what is really happening in these waters. That it's here that the Holy Spirit is poured out to fill our lives and to join us to the Father and the Son in love. It's here where the Father adopts us as beloved children, looking upon us with love and joy. It's here that this is all made possible because we die to ourselves and find new life now in Jesus. And it's Jesus and his perfect righteousness that God now sees in us. Here, we're not just baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, we are joined into their life of self-giving love. Jesus transforms John's baptism from a baptism merely of repentance and water to a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire, to a symbol of lives changed, to a baptism of transformation from death into life, to a reality of adoption by God as beloved children, of union with Christ in his life, in his righteousness, and in his mission in the world. Baptism is no mere ritual. When we come to these waters, it's not just a cute moment with a baby in a white outfit passed down through generations. Baptism is one of those moments where the veil that separates heaven and earth is lifted, when we're given a glimpse into a truer true, when we find out who we really are, the beloved of the Father, joined to the Son and filled with the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, as his identity as a beloved Son of the Father is spoken from heaven, That same spirit then drives him out into the wilderness so that the devil himself can tempt him. We'll look at that story next week. But that transition is the last thing we have to see this morning. That Jesus comes up out of these waters of baptism, has this beautiful moment with God, but isn't allowed to remain there. He isn't carried up into the glory of heaven for all eternity right then and there. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tempted to forget that he is the beloved Son of God, and to be told he needs to make himself 
to be tempted to repent of the ways of the kingdom of God and to follow instead the ways of the world. See, the wilderness in Scripture is the metaphor for our lives as aliens in this world, as those who are washed and yet waiting for Christ to return and make all things well. Israel is miraculously freed from slavery in Egypt. They cross through the waters of the Red Sea on dry land and then wander in the wilderness for 40 years, for an entire generation, as they're prepared and purged to enter the promised land finally. Jesus, too, is baptized in the waters. He comes up and is revealed as the beloved Son of the Father, only to be led into the wilderness for temptation. It's the wilderness where we live. And it's in the wilderness where we're tempted to forget who we are. You are baptized. You are united to Christ. You are the beloved of God. So remember it. And live like it. Turn from the ways of the world. Give up the anxious pursuit of making something of yourself. Give up the vapid task of self-realization. Give up pride and winning and self-preservation. Repent. Change your hearts and your lives. In following Jesus, find your true self in Christ, in your baptism. Live in such a way that every moment may give glory to your adoring Father. Use your talents, your gifts, your resources, your time to pursue the kingdom of God. And remember always the immeasurable love that makes all of this possible. That Jesus came that the Word took on flesh, that God emptied God's self, taking on human form, humbling Himself to be like us in every way, to hunger and mourn and suffer and eventually die, to be joined to us that we might be joined to Him, to empty Himself that we may be filled, to lower Himself that we may be raised, to suffer Himself that we may be healed, and to die Himself that we might live. Remember the love that makes this possible, for it's that love that is at the core. Don't lose sight of the love, for that's what makes the difference. Knowing the love, understanding that love, feeling that love, that's what transforms you. If it's only an idea in your head, it is of no good to you. It must be real, it must be felt. It must be known in the depths of your being. You are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we bless you. At those celebrations of Christmas not too long ago, are not just about nostalgia, are not just about a cute baby that shows up one day and a bunch of shepherds and sheep and kings from far away show up to, but that you, oh Lord, have become one of us, have taken on flesh in Christ, have lived our lives so deeply that you are numbered among us sinners in need of repentance. 
And yet you, O Lord, were not. You were the only truly righteous one. And so, Lord, as you submitted even to death, even to death on a cross, death itself has been tricked. Death itself has been undone forever and destroyed. And as you rose to new life, we now are ushered into that new life as well. We thank you for these waters of baptism that are a sign and seal to us of that great love that you have given yourself for us, that we have already died and already risen in Christ. And help us, Lord, so to live into our baptismal identity as beloved children of God, that we may follow you and your mission daily, finding what you are up to in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever it is that we find ourselves, seeing you already at work and joining ourselves and our gifts and our efforts with you and your kingdom. Lord, come, remind us by your Spirit of our identity in Christ as beloved children of God, that we may live for you and for your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.